invite you to take your Bibles and open them up, and we're to go in and try to cover all of Genesis chapter 13 this morning. Stalwart souls, you are having braved the snow and the storm. I commend you as well. Those who are listening online, I understand there are treacherous roads around. So together as we gather, as we look into his word, may he remain our primary focus in everything that we say and do this morning. I've got a lot of ground to cover, so I would ask first that you bow your heads and pray with me as we dive into God's Word this morning. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, once again, we are grateful for the beauty of your creation that surrounds us, the visible reminder that although we are dead in sins, our hearts can be clouded and darkened. It is through the work of Christ and through the blood of Christ that our hearts can be made as white and as pure as snow. We thank you for that reminder. I thank you, Lord, for each person that has gathered here today and for protecting people um, on their journey. We thank you, Lord, for your word that is opened up before us and your spirit that is present. We thank you already for the testimony that we have heard through the reading of your word and through the singing, lifting up our voices in, in response to your goodness and grace. Father, I, I do think of those that are going through difficult journeys and struggles and times of darkness or depression, times of fear and worry and anxieties. Father, I do think right now and we lift up um, our brother, Dave Trumbull. We thank you for Matt's testimony this morning. I pray, Lord, that you just be with him in these last days. But we live with a hope because of Jesus. We will spend eternity together. Father, may that hope resonate in our hearts. and May that motivate us to be clear communicators of the gospel of Jesus. Now, please, Lord, help me guide my mind and my mouth. May everything that is said be for your glory. May attention be on you and you alone. We ask this in the amazing and matchless and wonderful name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Amen and amen. One Sunday morning early in January 1850, Charles Spurgeon, at that point, was a 15-year-old young man. He was making his way to church when a fierce snowstorm led him instead to enter the primitive Methodist chapel located closer to his home. Only about a dozen people were there that morning, and he took a seat near the back. The regular minister had not been able to make it due to the storm, so when it was time for the sermon, a thin man whom Spurgeon supposed to be a shoemaker or a tailor went up to the pulpit. He announced and read the scripture text for his impromptu sermon, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of of the earth. The man obviously had little formal education and he mispronounced many of the words. But that did not matter to Spurgeon, for upon hearing the Bible verse, he thought it contained a glimmer of hope 
for him. The lay preacher began to deliver a homespun discourse in his broad Essex dialect. This is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, now looking don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just looking. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn how to look. You may be the biggest fool in the world, yet you still can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand pounds a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, many of you are looking to yourselves. But it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some say we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ, the text says. Look unto me. Assuming the perspective of Jesus, the preacher continued. Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. After he had spoken about 10 minutes, the layman apparently reached the end of his tether. Then fixing his eyes on young Spurgeon, he startled him by saying, Young man, you look miserable. You will always be miserable. You'll be miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then raising his hands, he literally shouted, Look, man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. Far from taking offense at being singled out, Spurgeon saw the way of salvation. He didn't hear anything the lay preacher said after that. He was so taken with that one thought. Years later, Charles Spurgeon wrote this, I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that one word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Now you may be remembering that just last Sunday I preached a message called Looking Unto Jesus, the author and finisher from Hebrews chapter 12 and and now again this week we have lift up your eyes and look yes there is an intentional theme by design of the fact that we are beginning a new year and we have got to more than ever before and i think this year particularly be focused on and looking to the lord jesus christ our only hope I read that illustration to you from the salvation of Charles Spurgeon as a reminder for you to be looking as we read our text this morning for those same words, the importance of lifting up our eyes and looking. We have been studying Genesis now for a year, apart from a little break in the summer. 
We've recently been introduced to a man whose name was Abram. Later, we will see in Genesis chapter 17, he will be changed to, as we know him, as Abraham. He is known forever by these words. Pastor Aaron read them this morning in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place, and he went out not knowing where he was going. He is a true hero of the faith, the father of the nations. Yet if you recall, we go back now a couple weeks before Christmas, the last that we heard of Abram, he had been in Egypt. And he had been spoken these words by an ungodly king, Pharaoh, in Genesis chapter 12. Let me remind you. Pharaoh said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say that she is my sister? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. He sent her away with his wife and all that he had. That doesn't really sound a whole lot like a great hero of the faith. Now here he is, and I can't believe I'm saying this. I think of that old country song. What He's been on the road for some time, and he is on the road again. But I think in all honesty, we can identify with him. Going places, he was instructed to go in faith. And what? Also venturing out on his own to places that he should not have gone in faithlessness. Now let's pick it up. We're going to read Genesis chapter 13 where we left off a couple weeks ago. The word of the Lord, Genesis chapter 13, verse 1. Here it is. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had in Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. In that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. 
The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise. Walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. The word of the Lord. What has happened? After facing a famine and not trusting in God to protect him and to provide for him. After this embarrassing debacle in Egypt, trying to convince Pharaoh that Sarah was not his wife, Abram now returns to this land of Canaan where he was supposed to have been in the first place. Now before we get too hard on him, let's examine and remember our own lives. Just like Abram, we may not be completely devoid of faith, but we certainly can doubt. We can doubt God and doubt God's promises. And that is exactly what has happened. But I want you to notice here, before we kind of dive into it, how this chapter starts and how the chapter stops. How it, how it begins and how it ends. In verse 4, it says, To the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. In a sense, he begins in worship, and it is concluded in verse 18, what? Abram moved his tent, came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Pick up on something here. It is here in Bethel that once again, Abram worships. And he renews his walk, his spiritual relationship with Yahweh, praise God. Ken Hughes says it like this, he describes it perfectly. The aroma of worship has enveloped the whole passage. I say that as a reminder for each one of us, let it be a lesson that what? Wherever you are right now, even from seasons of faithlessness in your own life, even from seasons of failure, we can always, always, always return to worship. May that be an encouragement to you, particularly as we want, begin this first week, complete, I should say, this first week of a new year. Truly, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every day. The Lord says, come unto me, all you that are what? Heavy-hearted, burdened, and I will give you rest. We always live, regardless of what has happened in the past, we always live with the newness of God's mercies every single day. But yet what? What happens in life as we live in a fallen world continues? You can be certain, and you will face this. Don't be shocked. Problems will 
arise. Problems will arise. And here it is in this particular narrative this morning. Three words, there was strife between what? The herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Two points I want to give to you this morning. The first one is this. Lot makes a bad decision based upon selfish motives. Lot makes a bad decision based upon selfish motives. Now, if you recall a little bit here, and this takes us back into the end of 11, chapter 12, Abram was the oldest brother. His youngest brother, Haran, had died, and now he's responsible to care for his brother's son, his nephew, Lot. And I will be clear on this. At this point, there's not a lot about Lot. He's just sort of there. Chapter 11, it says, Terah took Abram his son, and Lot his grandson, they went forth. Chapter 12, verse 4, and Lot went with him. Chapter 13, and verse 1, and Lot went with him. While it is maybe perhaps conjecture based upon Lot's actions from today's text, he doesn't add a whole lot. I was describing to Wendy just yesterday, he's kind of like a second spare tire. Like, we have it maybe just in case, and we have, but, but he's not really adding a lot. Commentators can really, really be tough with statements like this. Let me tell you this, don't ever tick off a commentator, okay? Because they will forever remember this. Commentators write with statements like this, Lot played no significant role in Egypt, and so he received no mention. Another commentator says that Lot had piggybacked off of of Abram's wealth so that both men were rich. And it's true. It says that what their possessions were very great. Now, upon upon returning to the exact spot in the land of Canaan in Bethel, the first significant mention that we have of Lot is connected to conflict. There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And it seems in all honesty, ancient, Old Testament, agrarian society and culture, it seems like a pretty legitimate concern here. They've suffered a recent famine and there are many animals to pasture, to feed, to water, to take care of. And there's only so much ground for, for them both. There's only so much that could go around. And they have servants, they have soldiers, and security, and livestock, and donkeys, and sheep, and oxen, and goats, and all of that. So Abram is what? He's the wiser of the two, and he is determined, and I love this, to nip it in the bud. The wisdom of Proverbs, boy, we could spend some time, we all could spend some time in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 17 says this, the beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. Isn't that just great wisdom of how we should live our lives? That's exactly what Abram is doing here. By suggesting a solution, Abram displays such maturity, 
such wisdom and ultimately what? By giving Lot the very first choice, he displays grace, great grace toward Lot and perhaps most importantly, magnanimous faith in God. I believe it was Boyce who used the word magnanimous. That's like a that's like a $9 word right there. The word magnanimous is defined as showing a lofty and courageous spirit, suggesting a nobility of feeling and generosity of mind. So think about it for a moment here. Let's, let's just set the setting for us. A shepherd runs into Abram's tent. Abram's probably playing chess. I don't know. He, he's sweaty, the shepherd is, because you don't get sweaty from playing chess, okay? So the shepherd is running in, he's totally out of breath, and he says what? It, it's happened again, boss, it happened again. We're down at the well, we're getting some water for our goats, And Lot's men started throwing rocks at us, and they ran us off and even threatened to beat us up if we don't let their animals drink first. What do you want us to do? Abram pauses. He he probably strokes his beard because that's what wise, he's just about to what? He's just about to, to, to castle his rook. He thinks for a moment in silence, takes a deep breath, and and with a sigh, he says what? Run and go get Lot. Because we need to talk. We need to talk. Lot comes in, and Uncle Abram begins with such important words for us and they are a perfect reminder for every one of us every single day of our lives this is what he says let there be no strife between us for we are kinsmen we are family to just just think for a moment if that's the way that families, godly families, existed today. Just think for a moment, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a local church, if everything that we did said what? We begin with, let there be no strife, because there is a brother before us, a sister before us. We are family. How does Abram get to this point? Undoubtedly, he's motivated. He's remembering the promises that God had given to him earlier, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. And God spoke to Abram. He says, I will bless you. I will bless you. I'll take care of you. What does Abram do? He takes the high road. Selflessly and sacrificially, he says to Lot, he says, we, we, we will solve this. We will solve this. But notice how he does it. Bethel is situated on a hill, about 3,000 feet high. Less than one mile southeast is the famous prominence, which is referred to as the Burj Batin. 
and it offers a magnificent view of the entire Jordan Valley. Undoubtedly, this is the spot that Abram says to Lot, go ahead. If you take the left hand, I'll go right. You take the right hand, then I will go uh, left. You know, I, I don't think that Lot pondered very long. He, he probably didn't have to look very long. For him, I think it was a pretty easy decision. It was an obvious choice. You look out there, and there's lushness. The green, the fig trees, the olive trees, the flowers, an oasis amid a desert. And Lot's like, like for me, <laughs> Absolutely. Now, now, before we start throwing rocks at Lot, how dare could Lot ever be so selfish? May I quickly suggest to you, why is it that we must, we must, we must teach our children when they are offered what? Their favorite piece of pie or their favorite kind of cake. What is it that we must always remind our children Never, ever take the biggest piece for yourselves. Never do that. You always let the bigger piece go to someone else. Please understand what? Deep down inside of us, deep down within us all, we want the biggest and we want the best for ourselves. So listen, listen here, okay? And, and see what is before us. Learn from this this morning. You drove here in the snow, like make it worth your while. And see that, that our own tendencies are here. And be careful that we don't make the same bad decision based upon selfish motives. Lot, it says, lifted up his eyes and Lot chose for himself. Now, I want you to note that Lot's self-concern, his selfishness, was the problem. But I want you to note something here. That's only some of his problem. Actually, his bigger problem, the bigger issues lie with his decisions and the direction that he's headed, particularly in closeness or the proximity of well-known and sheer evil. Again, listen very carefully what we read in just verse 12. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Here's the tragedy as Lot moved east, he literally moved as far as he possibly could in the land of, land of Canaan and as close as he possibly could to the city of Sodom. And I want you to notice the slow progression here and it'll actually kind of unwrap for us over the next couple chapters. First, we know that Lot looked. Second, he, he pitched his tents and then what? In chapter 14, it says that he's dwelling in Sodom. By the time you get to chapter 19, he's sitting in the gates of Sodom. Perhaps 
even some kind of a position. Now, why, why is this so tragic? Why is this so dangerous? Because it is described in verse 13 that the men of Sodom were wicked. Great sinners against the Lord. The description here is actually a rare phrase that suggests that these people living in that particular area were living at a lower level than most sinners. In Genesis chapter 19, we will see what the destruction and how this sin bears out. We'll get to that later on. I want you to note something as well. This does not imply that God's righteous wrath is worse for some sinners than other sinners. Because we all fall short. All sin is a reproach before a holy God. But it does speak about the fact that naturally what? Some will suffer greater consequences. And the point is what? Here's the point. Rather than moving further from evil, Lot chose to move closer to it. Did, did, did you hear that? Like, this is the point of what's going on. This is what we're grabbing. Rather than moving, there's, there's evil, there's wickedness, vile against the Lord. Rather than moving further from it, he actually chooses to move closer to it. I wonder if the psalmist, as, as we, we memorize this in Sunday school and we teach our children this, I wonder if the psalmist had Lot in mind when he wrote in the very first chapter of Psalm, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. We know that Lot is living by sight. Whereas Lot is living by sight, thankfully, Abram was living by faith. Second point, here it is. Abram makes a wise decision based upon faith in God's promises. I want you to pay careful attention to the order here, the order of events. Abram demonstrated faith before God offers promised blessings. And you're like, wait a minute, what about chapter 12? Well, God did tell him, generally speaking, in, in Genesis chapter 12, I will bless you, in you all the families of the earth shall be, shall be blessed. He's not given anything specific. There's been no information specifically directed about his own family until now. Thankfully, what God does is he actually affirms that Abram made the right decision, the wise decision, because God speaks again with promises that are beyond compare. Like we can't even fully fathom by way of the wording. Lift up your eyes and look. Notice, notice that Lot lifted up his own eyes. Whereas in this context, God says, Abram, I want you to lift up your eyes. God is instructing one as opposed to another taking initiative on his own. Lift up your eyes and look from where you look, north, south, east, and west. 
all the land you can see, I will give to you and to your offspring. And then there's this comment, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if you can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Now, without a doubt, although there was a season, just like in our own lives, where Abram questioned, forgot, doubted God's promises, there there is a theme that is being presented here. In chapter 12, I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you to your offspring. I will give this land. And now here in chapter 13, what can you count the dust? In chapter 15, as, as we see the establishing of the Abrahamic covenant, where we just kind of tent for a while, what is another picture that is given? Look to the heavens. Can you number the stars? And the answer is what? Can you, can, have you looked up? Can you number them? One, two, three. No, no. How about the dust on the ground? Can you number that? And as Pastor Aaron read this morning, another one, like the sand in the sea. Can you count that? Have you ever tried to? And you, you play with the sand? Like, is there, is there a, the means or the way or the ability to count any of that stuff? Absolutely not. In a sense, what is happening, you're being directed towards something that is bigger and better than anything that you could ever imagine. Look beyond the land, Abram. Look, look just beyond your own family. And, and Abram, I want you to see that in you, all the earth shall be blessed. Now, like, how, like, how, does, that, how does that even happen? Through you, all of the earth will be blessed. It's pointing to something. It's pointing to someone. It's pointing to one. Let's just stop for a moment, okay? And we have to step back. What is, what, what is a couple guys arguing about cornfields and cows have to do with me today, right? We always ask the question, whenever we hear the preaching of God's word, like, so What? What does this have to do with me today? Let's just consider for a moment the decisions that you and I make every single day. Now, many of them, and there's too many even to count, are like quick and easy. Do we go with the brown shoes or the black shoes? Who really cares? Okay, that's not what I'm talking about at all. Rather, what I'm talking about are the decisions that bump up against our own sin nature where we make decisions on a regular basis that bump up against our own sin nature, where we see something and we want it. Selfishness and pride. We want to feel good and we want to look good. Or how about this? How about doubt or fear? I don't know if God really hears me on this one. I don't know if really God even cares. I don't know if God's going to come through for me on this one. Or how about anger and jealousy when we run into what? And it's going to happen if it's not already when you run into a prickly personality, a hard-to-love person. 
and there's potential conflict. Someone who, who just doesn't see life or get life the way that you do. And on top of that, they behave boastfully or rudely, arrogantly. They're rude or they're cruel. And what? Maybe they're close to you. Maybe you just can't get away from them. You can't ignore them. You can't escape them. What do you do in those situations? What do you say? What are you not supposed to say? These are the types of decisions that I'm talking about. Now, now let's go back. If we were to follow Abram's example over Lot's example, Two men, two different types of decisions. If you're to follow Abram's example over Lot's example, I would suggest to you that it's going to sound pretty familiar. That, that Abram's example is, is going to sound like, like someone else and, and how he taught us to live. I think that Abram's example is going to sound a whole lot like Jesus Christ's example. Abram points to Christ. Remember what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Whenever you hear like, like the nothing part, there's not a lot of wiggle room there, okay? Which means that that includes everything of of the nothing. We do nothing out of our self-concern. So just, just picture Lot's decision versus Abram's. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Take the bigger piece of cake. <laughs> Have the best piece of the pie. Count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then it says what? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Think, look, make decisions based upon the way that Jesus Christ teaches us. Such sacrifice. Such blessing comes when we listen for the Lord to tell us to lift up your eyes and look as opposed to when we lift up our own eyes and look. Three things I want to leave you by way of kind of taking this text home. Number one, blessing comes when you look out for others before you look out for yourself. Just as Abram took the initiative to correct the situation. Let there be no strife between you and me. We're family. By offering up the very best for another, that is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. He offered up the best. He offered up himself. John chapter 15 says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Then Jesus makes this little statement, you are my friends. Isn't that, like, isn't that like one of the most beautiful? There's no greater sacrifice. You can have it. You can have the lamb without any blemish. I offer this for you. There's no greater love for anyone to lay down their own life 
for his friends. And by the way, that's you. Secondly, blessing comes when you look towards God's standards in place of the world's ideals. Which means, in a sense, we we look through different lens. We see life differently. Although the land to the east was the best, and there's no doubt about it. It is the richest, it is the most fertile. It, It doesn't mean it's the best place for God's children to be. Do you realize how many times, and I, I was like, like, even which one do I extract? How many times God warns us and tells us, stay away from ungodliness. Like, don't go there. You don't touch that. Second Corinthians in chapter 6 Let this be a reminder for us as we maneuver our way through life as godly people living in an ungodly world. Listen to this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Many people think that just is restricted between um, a marriage relationship. A a Christian person should not marry a a non-Christian, which clearly they should not but it expands outside of that. You don't yoke yourselves in business with unbelievers. You don't yoke yourselves in in close, intimate relationships in any way. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? It's a rhetorical question. There is no partnership. What fellowship has light with darkness? There is no fellowship. You can't have it. What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I love how Paul quotes Isaiah. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, obviously, we know that that does not mean that we are to be rude and and we throw stones at the lost world. No, we're to love them. We're instructed to that. We're to love our enemies and love our neighbors. But at some level, you cannot have Close, intimate fellowship and relationship. It can't happen. Not according to God's word. It's dangerous. Thirdly, blessing comes when you look to future promises that are fulfilled in Christ. God offers what Abram needs for future promises to be fulfilled. In a sense, how can there be life if there is no land, if there's nothing to eat? So God, in a sense, is preserving something, protecting something, along with the fact that what? He himself will be a blessing for generations to come. God is putting pieces into place for the ultimate blessing. For it's through his line, as we will see, that there will be one. Our staff meetings, we began reading this week in Matthew chapter 1. 
And what? And, and you can do this yourself over lunch as a family. And it begins with Abram. Abraham. And there's 14 generations. Then another 14 generations. Then another 14 generations. And it what? And it's Jesus. It's through his line there will be one. So rather than looking for the pleasures of this world, rather than looking to the comforts and the conveniences and the beauty of this world, rather than looking to yourself... Your talents, your beauty, your gifts, your skills, your intellect. It's going to sound like a broken record on this. We talked about it last week. Look to Jesus, the author and the finisher. How did we begin our sermon this morning? On a snowy morning in 1850. And Charles Spurgeon who was searching for something that he didn't really know he was searching for, couldn't get to the church that he wanted to go to, so he just kind of pops into one. A small little group of people, and a guy who probably didn't preach a whole lot, that's all right, and pronounce words wrong, that's all right, we all do. And there's, there's one simple word, one simple command. Don't complicate it. Don't confuse it. Look to me and be saved all you ends of the earth that verse continues on and it says what for i am god and there is none other so our narrative before us yes it speaks about family and it speaks about what conflict and resources and decisions that are made but 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 more than anything else it teaches us to see beyond what the lushness of what is in this world to look for the promises that are held in the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of one. I, I trust this morning, as you are what? You're just kind of getting your feet wet. You're kind of wading in to 2024 that you would understand the importance that is found in the wisdom displayed in the decisions of Abram, of trusting God with your life. Have you done that? Lord, I'm yours. I don't, I don't need what other people need. My eyes are fixed on you. If you have not done that, then I would encourage you today, a perfect, stormy, snowy day for you to hear what? Just what Spurgeon here. Your life will be miserable in life and death apart from you looking to Jesus. Father, we love you, and we thank you, Lord, for the truth of Scripture. We pray, Lord, that you'd continue to work in our hearts, even through the power of your Spirit that exists in your Word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.